This episode of New Politics was released on the 17th of November, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, have we reached the point of no return with the latest round of anti-vax protests in Melbourne? And the Coalition is still facing oblivion at the next federal election. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Gold Logie winner. Thank you to all of our new Patreon subscribers and thank you for your continuing support. And if you would like to support our little venture, the details are available at our website, newpolitics.com.au, and it's a very good way to support independent journalism. There was another anti-vaccine protest in Melbourne on the weekend, the second one in two weeks, and they're protesting against pretty much everything in sight. The vaccinations mandate, new pandemic legislation, Bill Gates yet again, and calling for the Victoria Premier, Daniel Andrews, to resign. The Liberal Party MP, Bernie Finn, he's an extremist in the Victoria Parliament, and Craig Kelly, a former Liberal Party MP but still a member of the Federal Parliament, they claim that Australia was being governed by medical bureaucrats that are a part of a mad, insane cult. This is all part of an orchestrated campaign urged on by News Limited and Sky News commentators, and there were calls from the crowd not only for Daniel Andrews to resign, but for him to be assassinated as well. This is where we are in Australia at the moment. These are Scott Morrison's people. He wants to keep their votes and he's yet to call out any of their actions. Australia needs political leadership on a national level, but it looks like we're not going to get it from this federal government. Have we reached a point of no return with this kind of action or will this come to pass by itself in good time? I'm hoping it's a temporary aberration in Australian politics because it's not Australian politics. Yes, we've had extremists in the past, the New Guard and the Old Guard of the 30s. The New Guard was a fascist movement. The Old Guard was a different kind of fascist movement. You had the anti-communist 50s, for example, as well, where you had radical leftists and radical right wing. Some of these were from immigrant communities, bringing their ideologies and battles from overseas. But there is a sense where Australian radicalism has existed always on the fringe. And the other thing, too, it has always had an Australian tinge to it, which is a worry. And it might be that part of the Australian psyche is extreme radicalism. I'm not quite sure it is. I think that it's just the, if you like, the bell curve of if we see politics as linear from the extreme left wanting to burn everything down to the extreme right wanting to burn everything down. And then most people fall well in between those two extremes. But this one is a bit different and it's a bit more worrying because it's mirroring the language of American fascism. All of the symbolism used, all of the language used, and all of the ideas used come straight out of radical American These are supposedly the great Australian patriots who hate globalism and what the American government has done. The steps of the Victorian State Library were really recreated to look like the steps of the US Capitol and the January 6th riots, 
or the January 6th, I think more fairly, insurrection. There were Trump signs at the Victorian protests. Why? And what it's doing, and this is, this is the great tragedy of it, not only are these people deluded and wrong, they're really just being puppets to legitimize American fascism because then the American fascists go to Melbourne and they take pictures and they say, look what's happening in Australia. We're part of this valid global scene. So we have validity and strength and credibility. Of course they don't. They're fascists. And the argument with fascism ended in 1945 with the end of the Second World War. So they're trying to resurrect a 60-year-old dead ideology. Some of the language is very frightening. There's hints towards anti-Semitism. There's hints towards otherism and racism and not even dog whistling. They're saying things that just shouldn't be said. We're getting a lot of language. Sovereign citizen. It's a nonsense concept, but it refers to an, an interpretation of the US Constitution, not an interpretation in any way can it be found in the Australian Constitution. I keep hearing we the people. That's not an Australian phrase as such. It's an English phrase, but it doesn't appear in the Australian Constitution. The Australian Constitution starts whereas the states. It's a very worrying thing. Of course, there's the numbers. I looked at the crowd and it looked to be about five to 7,000, which is a lot of people. They were claiming 150 to 200,000. It's just no way. I don't think you can fit that many people in the square and it, it didn't spill out over that. So they're agents of a foreign power, essentially, being duped into constitutionally wrong ideas that have no business in Australia and that will not work in Australia, that they're gaining some kind of traction can be a worry. And I say that because we're getting elected representatives of parliament going. Craig Kelly was there. Bernie Finn from the Victorian was there. Now, Peter Credlin is an elected representative, but she's a senior journalist and was part of the Tony Abbott office. She was there. What do they think they can do? Do they genuinely believe this stuff or is there another agenda at play? Well, this has gone past the point of being harmless fun and this behaviour has been condoned by Scott Morrison in the past. And when these people first started appearing in the early part of the pandemic last year, he said that people are frustrated and just exercising their democratic right to express that frustration. But then he went to castigate the Black Lives Matter protests a few weeks after that, claiming that they were putting public health at risk. So it's obvious that Morrison is not going to do anything or say anything about these protests, even when they're threatening to kill the Premier of Victoria. You mentioned Craig Kelly. He was there at the protest. Craig Kelly is a like-minded friend of the Prime Minister. He's still a member for the seat of Hughes. He was removed from the Liberal Party, but now he's trawling for preference votes to the Liberal Party as the leader of Clive Palmer's United Australia Party. I guess this goes without saying, but people do have the right to protest against government action, no matter how much we might disagree with it or how stupid we think their actions are. But I think we've actually crossed the Rubicon when protesters are openly calling for the killing of a political leader. They also brought out their nooses, the gallows, the guillotines. Most of these people seem to have been radicalised by QAnon ideas. Some of these groups have been influenced by neo-Nazis. Some of them are right-wing Christian groups. Some of them are from Proud Boys. We had some people promoting the idea that Daniel Andrews is a cyborg android. But wherever they're from, this is all bad news. And you're just thinking, well, where is the Australian Federal Police? Where is the fixated persons unit? Where 
is the Prime Minister condemning the actions of these protesters, whereas the media condemning the actions of these protesters. So for me, I've got a feeling that this is not going to end very well. Scott Morrison should be out there taking a break from serving sausages to dogs and getting haircuts. He should be out there condemning these actions, but he won't. These are his people and he wants their votes. Yeah, it worked once. John Howard, a far more skilled operator, was able to capture the One Nation vote without really losing control of it. Whether he should have done that, whether that was the morally correct thing to do or the ethically correct thing to do is a whole other debate. But he was able to do it to his advantage. Scott Morrison does not have the nuance, the intelligence, the skill, nor the tactical ability to be able to control this. He's too closely tied to QAnon with the revelations about his friend, Tim Stewart. Now, I I understand that there's been a distance put there and that the Stewart's no longer have that much to do with the Morrisons. But while he hasn't condemned Craig Kelly, and remember too, he intervened in the Cedar Hughes to keep Craig Kelly as the sitting member, which a lot of us who watch politics carefully thought that's going to come back and bite him, and it is. Now, is Daniel Andrews corrupt? I don't think so. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest he is. Other people say they have. If he is, and this is why they're saying he should be, he's corrupt, so he should be hanged, I have a real problem with assassinating political leaders. Something has gone horribly wrong when in Australia we are talking about this. This is not the the actions of liberal Western democracies. This is something else. Well, I think one of the problems is that all of this action is taking place in Melbourne, yet nothing is being done about it. But some of the other issues that have been coming up within those protests, and the big thing is the vaccination mandate, and many of the protesters have been claiming their body, their choice, and that's absolutely correct. But there's only a few high-risk professions and areas that have a vaccine mandate, and that's the medical profession, frontline hospital workers, school teachers, construction workers. Now, there might be a few others that I'm not aware of, but nobody else is being governed by a vaccine mandate. And for me, this is all a perfect example of freedom of choice in action. People have got the freedom of choice to not get vaccinated, but the rest of the society is saying, well, we are exercising our freedom of choice to minimise the risk of infection to the rest of the community. And if you don't get vaccinated, well, you can't go off and work in these high-risk areas. You can't go and play a community sport. You can't go out to restaurants until we reach a community vaccination rate of 90%. And if you do get sick from COVID, we'll still look after you, put you in a hospital, put you on a ventilator in ICU, but we want to minimise the risk of infection to the rest of the community. And it's known as the social contract. But these people don't want the social contract. They're engaged in extreme libertarianism. You mentioned the sovereign citizen stuff before. But the other fact is that if there were five to 7,000 people at these protests, and I wasn't there, so I didn't count them all, but if it's a little bit more or a little bit less, it's only 0.1% of Melbourne's population. And for sure, there might be other sympathisers who were not at those protests, but this is a small, radical portion of the community. And these people are being leveraged by the media and radical Liberal Party MPs to create trouble and to create opposition to a Labor government. That's what this is all about. Part of it is, I think, playing interference. Where they're stirring up the water so much, it's actually hard to see the arguments. And there's a lot of non sequitur. There's a lot of irrelevancy thrown in, which is a non sequitur. 
there's a lot of distraction going on. And if you're being distracted by arguments that the constitution has been sold to the Chinese Communist Party in, in 1973, for example, with no documentary evidence, with every state in Australia and every opposition party in Australia at the time agreeing to this, with the hundreds of public servants who must have been involved in the, the transfer of it keeping quiet, not one of them speaking out, then something is wrong with one, our education system, two, our communications. And again, it goes to a media that has allowed rubbish to be disseminated as fact for so long that now people don't know what fact is. People don't know what evidence is, and people don't know how to draw conclusions from facts and evidence. And this is how we get to things like the Melbourne protests and the Sydney protests and the Queensland border protests. Well, this is all falling along party lines as well. So we see protests in Perth and Melbourne and Brisbane, as you mentioned. They're organised by the same kinds of people, and sometimes it is actually the same people at those protests. And these are Labor states, yet we see virtually nothing in Sydney, Adelaide or Hobart, and these governments are run by the Liberal Party. There's also a strong link between the Liberal Party, News Corporation and the Institute of Public Affairs. They want to create dissent and encourage violence, and if they're failing at the ballot box... The Liberal Party wants to control political agendas in other ways. And for me, this is really dangerous territory. It's almost like a repeat of the Donald Trump strategy in the 2020 US presidential election. It's almost on the verge of replicating the violence that was shown at Capitol Hill earlier this year. And it seems that the Liberal Party itself, they're the ones that have been radicalised as well. And the only real solution is to throw these people out of office and make sure that they don't return for a long, long time. My feeling is that this is the only option at the moment. Yeah, defeat them so badly that they just can't get back. Morrison is part of that tradition in that he ran on a policy of basically running government down. That libertarian wing, which again comes out of American billionaires pushing American fascism, means that if there's no government, if government isn't doing anything, the ultra-wealthy can get away with whatever they want because there's no checks and balances. That includes putting in unqualified people into top jobs. And it's odd that us on the progressive side of politics are really doing what the conservatives did for many years, preserving worthy institutions. <laughs> and yet here we are. We're in topsy-turvy land. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. latest round of opinion polling is showing that the Liberal Party is still on the nose, but six months away from the latest possible election date, which is May the 21st, there are still many issues that can affect the way the next election is being played out. 
There's the economy, there's consumer sentiment, there's the weather, there's new political events that can appear out of nowhere. And the end of one calendar year can always provide a reset for an election year. Scott Morrison is becoming more unpopular and has a net approval rating of minus eight. But many Prime Ministers have had even worse figures than Scott Morrison does and they've managed to claw their way back to an election victory. Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, Malcolm Turnbull, John Howard on two occasions, they've had worse figures six months out from Election Day and they were still the Prime Minister after those elections. If we make a comparison between November 2021 and November 2018, also six months away from an election, Morrison was virtually in the same position. Net approval rating of minus eight. He was behind 47% to 53% in the two-party preferred vote. He was preferred Prime Minister by 6% in 2019. Now it's 8%. And he went on to win the 2019 federal election. Is history going to repeat for Scott Morrison or is it a case of lightning never striking in the same place twice? You can't underestimate the strategy. It's not one election, it's 150 small elections. We don't know what's happening in seats, and no one really can. I mean, we look at the election as broadly and as closely as we can, as do others. And really, most people do a pretty fair job of trying to keep on top of stuff. But when it gets down to those local things, and it goes down to how did they manage to put the posters up? Some people totally disengaged just vote for the last poster they see or the first one. Now, most of this balances out, to be fair, but you can be sure that the parties are aware of this. We have the ever-present pork barrelling. And while we'd like to think, yes, it won't work again, if it's your electorate that has been promised a new road or a, a new hospital or a new school or whatever, and this is in an area where you're qualified, but there is no work in the area. And this is, gives you a decent shot at work or an extra income or at uh, more convenience. There'll be a lot of people who grit their teeth. Rather than voting for the good of the country, they'll vote for the good of their electorate. And this is stuff that I don't think anybody can fully know because I don't think it's possible to be across every single electorate in the country and know every single piece of subtlety and thinking and nuance across that. There are some saying that he might do a Stephen Bradbury. And of course, Stephen Bradbury is a little bit underrated. He came fourth, I think, in the heats. And that was because someone fell over in the heats and he was able to skate past them, which got him the qualifying. So him and the coach worked out that if someone fell over, he was never going to place by himself. But if he stood far enough back and could maintain a fourth position, he might get a bronze, which is a fantastic result. And let's be fair, fourth is a fantastic result. And of course, luck went his way and fortune favours the brold and, and, and all of that. And the first three fell down and he skated past them to win. So the luck was not that someone fell over but that the three of them fell over and he was able to win gold fairly and, and according to the rules. Morrison is a bit like that in that he will look at the places where he can sneak through, but he's not so worried about the rules. There's more integrity and honour in an Olympics competition, and for those of you who've looked at the history of the Olympic Games, this is really saying something, although to be fair, each sport is pretty fairly judged for the most part. 
Morrison will be looking for that Bradbury moment where he can scrape over the lines. And if he has to, to continue the metaphor, deliberately trip the people in front of him over, he will. And I think that's a massive difference too. Well, just looking at that Stephen Bradbury issue, so Scott Morrison is now claiming that he's the underdog in the lead-up to the next election, and the underdog in a contest, well, they usually have talent, and most political leaders all around the world during this pandemic, well, they've been sweeping election victories because they've managed the pandemic very well, and those political leaders who haven't, such as Donald Trump in the United States, well, they've been removed from office, so... Scott Morrison is in a poor political position. It's not like this has just happened out of nowhere. He's in a poor political position because he's been a poor political leader and he just hasn't managed the pandemic very well. And all of the other jurisdictions in Australia which have had elections during this time since the pandemic started, the ACT, Northern Territory, Queensland, Tasmania, Western Australia, all of those political leaders, they've always been ahead in the polls during the pandemic, and they've all been returned with an increased majority, yet Scott Morrison is in a losing position at the moment. I think that says a lot about his political leadership. Yeah, I think the one thing that's been certain to now is that if you mismanage the pandemic, or if you were seen to mismanage the pandemic, you lost. Now, the last six months or so, the pandemic has cooled as an issue. Let's be fair there. Vaccination rates have meant that there's a bit less spread in the hot states, except for Victoria. But Victoria keeps having these protests that spread the virus, for example. Borders are slowly, slowly, slowly opening up. I think Queensland opens on the 17th of December. So there's a return to some kind of normalcy, which I think Morrison is hoping will play to his advantage. It's going to depend a little bit on the memory of the electorate. And I know that Labor has been loath to run negative campaigns, but a bit of negativity on where was he during the bushfires, which is this electoral cycle. Where was he when he was supposed to be ordering 40 million doses of Pfizer that don't come for three months, being partially the cause of a three-month lockdown in Sydney, which essentially locks the country down? Where was he for all the other things too. There's so many they've crammed in my head and they're stuck there and I can't get them out. <laughs> Labor could run on that and just keep that memory going and the independents. And in fact, the independents are basically running on, the more progressive independents are running on a vote for Morrison is a vote for Barnaby Joyce, uh, which is something that must worry the National Party. And Barnaby has not covered himself in glory in his last few interviews either, with that lack of understanding that current nationals seem to have of the parliamentary system. I'm still loath to say that there's no way Morrison can win. I think there are several ways he can win, but I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for him to win. Well, many people who dislike Scott Morrison as Prime Minister, they've probably always disliked him anyway, but they're suggesting that he is disliked to such a level that he cannot come back politically. And and this is not the case. We have to put this all in context. There are many people who actually do like Scott Morrison, and he did make a return in 2019 at the time of that election, as did other unpopular prime ministers, as we pointed out before. So it does show yet again that approval and disapproval ratings don't mean much, nor does the preferred prime minister rating. We've said this quite a few times before, and actually all polls don't really matter that much but it's all part of the fun and games and it does give us something to talk about so morrison has come back in the past from a similar position and 
that means that he can do it now. He can repeat what he did in the 2019 election. But conversely, just because it's happened in the past, it doesn't mean that it will happen again. So election victories like the 2019 election, they don't happen very often. And it's even less likely to happen in two consecutive elections. But there's so many things that need to fall into place for the next election to be favourable for the Liberal Party. At the time of speaking, I can't see them winning Western Australia. I can't see them winning Victoria. And I can't see them winning Tasmania. Those are three states that swing elections. South Australia, I'm not sure. The, the Liberal Party in South Australia has had those corruption issues. New South Wales, you can never tell. Corruption doesn't seem to be an issue when it comes to the Liberal Party in New South Wales. And Queensland will do whatever Queensland does. But the Victorian seats and the Western Australian seats are probably enough to make it a very hard road. It, it's going to be a fascinating election. Well, you also have to look at the past to look at the future. So we can see that Scott Morrison is now trying to repeat his marketing strategy from 2019. And he's also gone further back. He's starting to use some of the tactics from John Howard's 2004 election campaign, with Morrison now claiming that he'll keep interest rates low, electricity prices down, as well as the cost of living and petrol prices, even though petrol prices are skyrocketing at the moment. And they're the highest that they've ever been in Australian history. And this really is a dangerous area for Morrison. He's known for his outright lies, and he can get away with it in most other areas. But if he makes all of these outrageous promises, he can lie about interest rates, cost of living and petrol prices for as much as he likes. But if that doesn't match up with people's lived experience and the real world, well, Morrison is just gone. No one is going to believe a word that he says and it's not going to make any difference to his chances of re-election. I've been pondering over, has, I think Mike Carlton brought it up, but certainly has Morrison lost the centre because he is seen as a liar? When the leader of a foreign country who is ostensibly an ally calls your prime minister a liar and can back it up with the evidence. This is possibly true. And it seems to have stuck in Australia, at least with certainly the what I'll call the left, but also a lot of the centre. And this is where I think, to go back to the first half just very briefly, the radicals who might be being used as a stalking horse for Morrison but a lot of them can't stand him anyway because they think he's part of the problem and part of the conspiracy. So it becomes, again, this is where these things become unpredictable. It, it, the ball, if you like, couldn't bounce any way, and we won't know what way it bounces till after the election. If we're aware of the ways it can bounce, we can hopefully find potential pathways that are more credible than others. Well, sometimes those political lies don't really matter that much, and it depends on what the lie is all about. So when it comes to the French submarine deal, most of the electorate might be thinking, well, Morrison told a fib about something with that French guy. Who was it again? Oh, it doesn't really matter. Or he might lie about what he did or what he said to the American president. It might not have much resonance as far as the Australian electorate is concerned. So there's certain things that you can lie about. There's certain things 
things that you can tell absolute whoppers about, but it doesn't really matter. But my point is that when it comes to things that affect people on a daily basis, such as promising to keep interest rates down, cost of living down, petrol prices down, well, that's a promise that he can't really keep. Like There's so many things that are out there that will affect those issues. And that's the, that's the point that I'm making, that if all of these things don't match up to what people are living and experiencing on a day-to-day basis, well, that's the end of Morrison. He's promising things that he can't actually keep. As far as the French submarine deal is concerned, unless you've actually got a contract with those companies that are producing submarine parts in Australia, or unless you're actually working directly with some of those companies, it doesn't really affect that many people. But interest rates, well, that affects everyone. Costs of petrol prices, that affects everyone. So I think this is really dangerous territory for Scott Morrison. Oh, for sure. John Howard essentially loses he, he loses the 2007 election because there was enough doubt put in people's mind that he was going to take holidays away. Now they never said that they never they I don't think they would have considered that for years if at all, but that was the perception. And and this is what I'm saying about the French president. People yeah may not know who the French president is, people may not, but the fact that the accusation has been thrown at him and to a greater or lesser extent has stuck. And then, yeah, well, petrol prices are up. If interest rates go up a quarter of a percent, 25 points, he's finished because they've always said, oh, we'll have lower, lower interest rates. Now, they're not likely, if they're going to go up at all, it won't be till probably May or June of next year because the Reserve Bank are very skittish about a, a collapse in housing and a, and a flood of houses onto the market through foreclosure. They're also very worried about overborrowing. And usually you stop overborrowing by putting interest rates up. But if rates go up, I think 1%, something like 30% of households will not be able to afford their mortgage anymore. That's four upward movements. And yeah, one of these things goes wrong with Morrison already with the image of liar. He's finished. He's got to hope that he can last till the election. And May is maybe when uh, rates might go up. And the 15th of May, say, which would be the, uh, if they go up half a percent, he's gone. You know, if petrol prices don't go down quickly, he's gone. And let's not even talk about electricity. And the federal government is still undermining Labor states. This seems to be an endless process. So that's Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia. And they're currently attacking the West Australian government for deciding to open up only after the state reaches a 90% vaccination rate, which is likely to be in late January or February. The health minister, Greg Hunt, he was spreading rumours that no, this is not going to be the case, that WA was going to open up for a test cricket match in early January. And it seems that the West Australian Premier, Mark McGowan, he's absolutely had enough of this. What do you say to the speculation that the Ashes are going to prompt you to open our borders earlier? Who's saying that? Greg Hunt. OK, I've never met Greg Hunt. I've never spoken to Greg Hunt. I wouldn't know him if I met him. Um, he's got a very vivid imagination. Uh, he hasn't spoken to the health minister. Uh, I just urge the Commonwealth government to stop making things up. I don't know why he would think that. Uh, he has no basis to say that. Uh, the Commonwealth has been difficult the whole way along uh, the last two years, always trying to be very adventurous and unsafe, whereas we have been very cautious and very safe. Uh, the, the adventurous and unsafe approach was New South Wales. And what you saw there uh, was hundreds and hundreds of people lose their lives, mass economic dislocation, uh, hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs. Whereas in Western Australia, 
we've been safe and cautious, and we've had the opposite outcome. So, uh, look, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to undermine all of our good efforts and all of our work over the course of the last two years at the last minute, and therefore have to put in place all sorts of restrictions, lockdowns, have people get sick and die. Uh, it's not long to go till we get to the 90 per cent. Let's just hold the course. So this seems to be an endless battle. The state's trying to achieve the right health and economic outcomes for their citizens, whereas the federal government is doing the exact opposite, and they still keep playing political games at every opportunity. Yeah, it's, and we've said this before, it's all they know how to do. They don't know how to govern things. They don't know how to run things. They don't know how to, to help people. They don't know how to protect people. They don't know how to keep people safe. All they know how to do is slam the other side. We've, we've, had, we've come to a point where it, it has to change or the country will keep decaying because if, you're not, if the major employer, which is the government, if the major legislation maker really sets the tone for the country is in disarray, then the country is dis in disarray. Now, I know Morrison has said he wants business to lead us out of the climate crisis. Business is very unlikely to do that without government help and support because it's not the role of business to do that. And he should know that but this abrogation of responsibility. And again, even the disengaged start to notice things. There's a lot of people who would never have thought about it 10 years ago, but are now very worried about the environment because we're seeing the change. We're bushfires, earthquakes, which have to do with climate change, more extreme storms. I don't know how many once in a hundred year rainstorms we've had in the last five years, at least three winds, bigger cyclones, people in it, longer droughts, deeper floods, people are noticing this. And unless he can somehow find the competence to start dealing with it in real and honest and making hard decisions, we're in a lot of trouble. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.